0: From University of Utah Health and Scope Radio, this is Pioneering the Future, stories of discovery and innovation. I'm Kyle Wheeler. Today's theme is Inspired by Nature, where we're exploring how discoveries made by University of Utah Health researchers have been made by exploring nature or leveraging naturally occurring biochemical processes. To bring some focus to this subject, my guests today are Margot Haygood, PhD, and Eric Schmidt, PhD. Dr. Haygood is a research professor in the Department of Medicinal Chemistry, she is also an emeritus professor of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at University of California, San Diego, where she and Dr. Schmidt did some of their initial collaborations. Dr. Schmidt is a faculty member in the Departments of Medicinal Chemistry and Biological Sciences at the University of Utah, and is currently a Professor and Endowed Chair in Pharmacy. And with that, here is my discussion with Drs. Haygood and Schmidt. I'd like to welcome Drs. Haygood and Schmidt today to Pioneering the Future, as a way to get started, I do like to get to know the guests a little bit. I suppose the question to the two of you would be how did you what did you imagine doing professionally maybe when you were a teenager or in your early adulthood and and how has your career developed in comparison to that um Dr. Haygood, do you maybe want to to take that first
1: well i'm a female scientist and I got my education in the nineteen seventies and eighties and so actually, I never saw myself as being um, a principal investigator, professor, leader in uh, in, a, in a scientific setting, my dream um, was to be a high-level technician in someone else's lab because I had never seen a successful woman scientist. You know, I had no role models. So the whole thing's been a total surprise to me, and I've accomplished more than I might ever have dreamed of
0: that's incredible and 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 what a a beautiful transition to see i think you becoming a role model in in your career uh dr. Schmidt, would you mind taking that that question as well
2: um uh, sure uh I feel like I've been very lucky actually because i've always i found uh my seventh grade no go and um, i found that among my two top goals were working on marine biology and being a chemist and I managed to accomplish both of those um so it was very random and uh stochastic process leading me here but somehow this goal has always been in mind
0: That's a that's a, a a beautiful find I think to to come across a notebook like that I love moments like that to kind of see that you had a goal in mind at a young age and and that that has played out even if the the path is maybe not as direct as one might imagine when they're younger so today, the topic that we're approaching this month with Pioneering the Future is novel approaches to uh, drug development and therapeutics. And so the two of you have had a, a, a history of, of work in, in this area. And I think something that I want to do before t- diving into some of the work that the two of you have been involved in is maybe talk about this in in a general sense. So in the minds of a layperson, drug development may be has kind of a somewhat sterile and, and solely lab-oriented endeavor. However, Dr. Schmidt, you stated in, in a Scope podcast several years ago, and, and, and these numbers could certainly be different by now, that as much as a quarter of newly approved drugs come from natural sources. Can you and, and Dr. Hagen, if you have any comments on this, maybe talk about perhaps the history of how biolife has played a strong role in the development of drugs and treatments?
2: I think the numbers are still holding up about a quarter of drugs that are approved are natural products or their close derivatives. And about another quarter, so 50% in total are inspired by natural molecules and then scientists in the lab have at it. And so nature is really a rich source uh, for drugs, uh, always has been, and still continues to be a rich
1: source. I guess the. I would only add that I come at things as a biologist and I um, I always believe in the creativity of the natural world over three billion years on this planet and all the organisms that are living together and interacting, that it's it's only natural that most of the interesting and active compounds are going to come from the natural world rather than the rather limited imagination of humans.
0: You know, and as I was exploring the research that the two of you have done, that appears to be a narrative to me that there's there's so much that's compelling in nature and that nature has experience with, that nature is so inspiring uh, in, in this realm. You know, uh, on the surface, to, to maybe someone such as myself that's an, an, a non-scientist, there there may be perhaps a sense of, okay, we're utilizing nature for medicinal purposes. And, and I think that might have a connotation to a layperson that that's, okay, well, let's let's grind up nature and turn it into a supplement. But what the two of you do and work on and have involvement with is, is clearly much more complex than that in, in that we're talking about synthesizing naturally occurring compounds or using naturally occurring compounds uh, for inspiration. Could the two of you talk about the work of synthesizing naturally occurring compounds and how you might determine their medicinal value?
2: I think the actual discovery of what is going on in nature is much harder than appreciated. And there's a fine art really to finding out what's responsible uh, for a drug-like activity in nature. So you can think about cases where people have taken, you know, a truckload of a plant, for example, and then in the end, what you isolate, what's the actual active compound from that is such a small amount that you can't even see it in a vial. And so there's an art to actually being able to take these very complicated biological systems, mixtures where a lot of stuff is going on, and finding the one thing that is going to matter to human health out of that mixture. So I think that part is still very difficult and challenging and still poses a challenge this day. And then once you have that, the next step is to supply it. And to do so, you've got to make it, you've got to play with it in the lab. And that also takes an enormous amount of work. So um, this is the trajectory of the natural products field is to try to find that rare uh, compound that is having the impact that you want, and then to turn it into something that is um, available enough that you can actually use it in human health.
1: I would only add to that the sort of 20th century approach was to take the biggest diversity of biological samples possible and put them into whatever test you were interested in for the disease that you're interested in and find the small number of things that will be active there. Something that Eric and I have been thinking about and working on in more recent times is to try to understand the natural function of the molecules in the system and use that to find things faster.
0: I think that's fascinating to that, to see that there is, you know, Dr. Schmidt. I like that you note it as a bit of an art form, and 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 Dr. and as you point out that there is an evolution of what this looks like in terms of how the research is going uh, to try and hasten the the speed of of being able to leverage naturally occurring compounds for medicinal purposes. Maybe a follow-up question to this is, what does the timeline look like? Uh, And and this is obviously could be extremely variable in discovering something that may have a, a medicinal quality to actually turning it into a therapeutic
2: I think you got it right it's variable I would say most of the time um, it takes a decade or more uh, and it's rare that something moves more quickly than that but it does happen
0: the reason I bring that up is it just seems to me like worth noting how much work goes into this you know that it's not it's not a simple process uh, uh, to come to a medicine out of out of The explorations that that the two of you and many, many other scientists work in.
2: Uh, I think that's true. And I I don't think it's uh, natural products restricted. Uh, People doing pure synthesis and screening, that takes a huge amount of work too. Uh, People only see the end product, which is, you know, potentially hundreds of years of work, um, you know, hundreds of years of person work to get to that point.
0: You know, Doctor Haged, I think you've alluded to this somewhat in, in your comments so far. Um, but could you maybe answer, or, or, or Doctor Schmidt, you're welcome to answer as well. Why is the natural world such a good resource for possible, you know, therapeutic purposes for for humans?
1: Well, again, this comes back to the fact that there's been life on Earth for three billion years. And many, many organisms, most of which are microorganisms that we can't see, that are all fighting to survive and uh, combining and recombining their genetic resources to do so. There's at, At present, there's no system like that that we can use in the laboratory that can come up with that number and variety and complexity of compounds that also are tuned to biological processes. The problem with synthesis is you can synthesize a lot of simple compounds, but making those behave like drugs is something that organisms have been working on for a long time. Moving forward a little
0: bit, I think another question that comes to my mind, and I think I saw you comment on this in a video, Dr. Haygood, is that we have this collective tendency to believe that we understand nature. Um, but you noted that there is so much that is unknown. Can you maybe further comment on, on the notion and the implication behind the fact that there is so much that we don't know about the bio life that's on our own planet?
1: Well, as much as I love Mars, I just feel like we aren't putting enough effort into understanding our own planet and the things that, that live here. When we think of how little we know about the deep ocean and and the life that's there um, and um How many new things are being discovered every day in the biology of the planet? It's just going to take a lot of effort by a lot of people for a long time to put the whole picture together. We have techniques and methods now, things like environmental DNA where you could survey the organisms in a in a an environment without ever collecting anything. Those are going to, going to be huge. Um, multipliers in getting us to our understanding faster, but it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort.
2: I don't know if you would agree with this, Margot, but I feel like what we're talking about and what you're describing is that we haven't even really begun to map what's out there, much less to understand it.
1: Yes, I would agree with that. And I think that's a
0: remarkable thing to keep in mind when when talking about this this notion of of looking for therapeutics that that might be inspired by nature uh is is just recognizing how little we do know and how much there is left to know uh, about about naturally occurring things that are happening here on our own planet let's move into talking about some of the research that the two of you have worked on uh and and how it's it's been an an inspiration of of innovation and, and discovery here with the University of Utah, and also broadly with other teams of, of of people from other institutions that the two of you have worked on. Now, the two of you were featured or were part of a feature in the, the New York Times uh, that came out in early 2020, where the two of you went to with a team to the Gulf of Mexico to study shipworms. Um, and Dr. Haygood, I know that you had a, a a hand in this previously and exploring these shipworms previously. Could you maybe first of all tell us what a shipworm is?
1: Sure. Shipworms are actually clams. So the term worm is a misnomer. They're called worms because they have a worm-like body. So these are animals that burrow into wood and they use the shells. If you think of a clam, the shell encloses the body. But when a shipworm the shells are right on top of the head like a hat and they twist this against the wood and they burrow into the wood that way. So they are called shipworms because they uh, became a problem for humans during the era of wooden ships. So actually the heyday of shipworm research is 150 years ago. Um, we've become interested in them now because of the, their medicinal potential, but uh, most of the work that was done on shipworms in scientific research was trying to defeat them from um, eating structures that humans produce
0: now it, and I looked at at a few um, you know a few things that that highlight some of the work that you 've done with shipworms their, their size at least in some of the ones that i saw they're they 're about the size and shape
1: of maybe a baseball bat, correct. So that is the giant mud-dwelling shipworm. Uh, it's called uh, Cufus polythalamius*. It's uh, very unusual in its size. It's by far the largest shipworm, and it's the longest mollusk. Okay. Um, most shipworms, I would say, are probably the size of your little finger on average. Ah, they can okay. be so small that they live in the rhizomes of seagrass and are only a couple of millimeters long. They can be... Um, a, you know, a couple of feet long, the ones that live in the branches of mangroves. And then there's this giant one that, that lives in the mud. There's a tremendous diversity in the family. Okay.
0: That's that's helpful to understand that there's differences a- across what shipworms could could look like and, and be in size. Could you talk about what is so compelling about them in terms of their potential for novel medicines or or the development of
1: novel medicines? Well, our close colleague uh, and collaborator on this, Dan Distel, began to study shipworms before I became interested in them, um, studying them as a kind of a nutritional symbiosis. They have bacteria in their gills that take nitrogen from the air and turn it into amino acids that the shipworm can use to grow because wood has very little nitrogen in it. And they also produce enzymes that help the shipworm to break the wood down into a food that it can use. And that's a common kind of symbiosis. It's like the the uh, root nodules on like uh, legumes, you know, beans and peas and things like that. And so I thought it was very kind of humdrum and um, not that interesting. And then we uh, Sequenced the genome of one of these symbionts and Dan invited Eric and me to help participate in looking through this genome. And we found that it was chock full of very complicated biosynthetic pathways for um, unusual kinds of compounds that would make things like antimicrobials. And that just completely blew our minds, was totally unexpected. And it made us start to think about this whole symbiosis in a different way, thinking that the bacteria are certainly there to provide nutritional support to the host, but maybe they're doing some other things too, like helping the host to keep its wood digestion organ free of competing bacteria by making antimicrobials. So that idea sparked in us at that time, more than 10 years ago, and we're still working on that idea.
0: Very fascinating work, and and to me, I what's so interesting to me is is how you mentioned that it it seemed like there the processes that were going on were you know rather pedestrian and known types of processes, but that within the research that there there ended up being something remarkable going on.
1: And I think this is true all over the biological world. Things that we think we understand, if you scratch the surface, there's a whole lot more interesting stuff going on. Very fascinating. Now,
0: I was really interested reading the New York Times article where the two of you were there in, in, in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, I, I just found it a very interesting story in terms of the opportunity doing a little bit of field work. Would either of you be willing to talk about that trip and whether it was exciting for you? What was what was so fascinating about going to do the work in, in, in the field there?
1: Sure. Well, in fact, you know, for uh the last 10 years we've been doing field work uh in other places in the Philippines, the Solomon Islands, Brazil. Um so we've done a lot of that kind of thing. And this project was um was interesting because first of all it's it's in the US so it's a lot uh a lot less headache to get yourself there and, and to do the work. Um for me it's always exciting to go and uh you know get my hands on the the laboratory work that I've done in the early part of my career, but that usually gets handed off to, to other people nowadays. So it's it's just fun to to sit down with a pipette and a petri dish and and do the and actually do the work. And then field work is always exciting because you don't know what's going to come into the lab on any given day. And also working with shipworms, you have to chip them out of the wood that they're in. And for me, that's, for some reason, a very satisfying activity. Um, it's kind of a hunter-gatherer thing, but it's also a craft because you have to be very careful not to injure the animal who's going to be photographed later and identified. So there's just all kinds of fun aspects about it. Oh, and then the best thing is being crammed together with other like-minded people um, that you enjoy working with.
2: Yeah, I have to agree with everything. Um that Margot said. And one of the best things about field work, from my perspective as a chemist is that chemistry can be quite abstract. And there's something really grounding about looking at nature directly out in the field. And that adds a lot to our projects.
0: I, I love that. And I, I was very fascinated about that particular fieldwork in the Gulf of Mexico, just because it seemed like it it had a very maybe transient
1: window where you were able to collect samples, and that's been only been more so because of all of the hurricanes in the last year. The different parts of the site get keep getting exposed and covered up.
2: Yeah, that was a crazy tough trip compared to what we're used to in terms of the diving conditions and um, the window that we had that was limited.
0: Really fascinating. Um, you know, I, I, and I know in, a, in another podcast, Dr. Schmidt, when you had spoken with, with Julie Kiefer, that uh, you know, there was. There's maybe that envy that some of us have at this notion of getting to go out into the field, but that it's not maybe as as frequent as perhaps you might enjoy um,
2: to get out there. But uh, but still fascinating when you have the opportunity. Um, It's for sure not as frequent as it could be like uh, I would not go into this field if you want to work out out in the nature all the time because it's once a year or every few years sometimes. Um, But it is great to get out. It's a good field um, that gives you that mixture of being in the lab and then getting out into nature as well.
0: Well, Dr. Schmidt, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the work that you and your team uh, do in that, you know, you do a lot of work on synthesizing compounds with with uh, using genetics and chemical tools. You know, that that may be a little bit difficult for a, a layperson such as myself to understand. Could you talk a little bit about what that means and and how that's different from simply isolating a compound from an organism?
2: Uh, Sure. Uh, If you isolate a compound from an organism out in nature, for example, then you've got to always go back to that source to get more of the compound. And you're also stuck with that exact compound that comes from nature. Um, But with genetics, what you can do um, is there's really been this explosion of understanding how organisms put together these compounds. And so with genetics, we can take that understanding, we can change the genes, and we can make new compounds um, that we're interested in for one reason or another. And so it just uh, adds a lot. Out of all of the natural product drugs that are out there, for example, um, probably only a quarter of them or less are the actual natural product. Most of them are synthetically modified in some way, um, and genetics lets you do that more quickly. I would say.
0: Okay, that's that's very fascinating. I, I think, you know, that that's something that I'm interested in in terms of just understanding. I've noticed a lot of of at least researchers I've talked to. Maybe they have their foundations in. in in biochemistry, but the, they're leveraging genetics and some of the work that they're doing. And that's interesting to know that it, it maybe can help pick up the speed
2: of what you're doing. It's not just the speed, I would say, but we're kind of in science as a whole. We're in this amazing period right now where all of these different disciplines are are coming back together and and merging again. So it's rare these days to find somebody who who just focuses on genetics or biochemistry or synthetic chemistry or whatever discipline you can think of. Uh, We use tools from all kinds of disciplines. Uh, It's a good time to be a scientist for that reason, I would say.
0: Now, another question related to the research that you and your team have worked on, Dr. Schmidt, that I have is, you know, what are are some of the I guess, properties or, or, or I guess medicinal properties of some of the compounds that you've worked on. For example, I've read that your team has discovered an anti-HIV compound. Um, could you talk about some of the, the medicinal properties, I guess, of some of the compounds that you've worked with and, and what the implications are of those?
2: Um, sure. So every drug discovery um, program is a long shot. Only a small amount of compounds make it. Um, most of ours that are still in in development of some kind or in the infectious disease space for one reason or another. Um, And there what you do is you find a compound that's promising and you try to figure out as much as you can about it so that other people might be interested in developing it. Um, After the discovery phase, there are many disciplines involved in getting something to the market, people who understand pharmacology, people who understand clinical science, people who understand marketing. All kinds of other stuff has to come in. So it kind of leaves our hands after a certain point. Another thing that's important, I think, to know is that even when we find compounds that are not going to be drugs, they often shed a lot of light on what you need to do to develop a drug in that area. So for example, with the anti-HIV compound that you mentioned, that is a nice potent compound, but I would be pretty surprised if it ever became a drug but it does tell you what you would need to do in order to optimize the properties of that class of compounds. And there's many labs in the world that are working on those types of compounds. So it adds a lot uh, to the further development in that area.
0: I So I find that very fascinating. And I, and I like that you noted that you know, something may not necessarily lead directly to uh, the development of some therapeutic, but a, that it adds to the understanding of perhaps the mechanisms of of a disease, uh, or or can lead to the under a better understanding of what needs to be developed in a therapeutic in the future.
2: Uh, yeah, that's right. So you, every little piece matters. Um, there's this tendency to think about scientists as you know lone geniuses in the case where they're developing these new drugs, for example. But in reality, um, you know, there's an enormous body of work done by um, now millions of people that all build into this uh, system that we have, where we are regularly discovering new drugs um, pretty quickly, really, overall.
0: I, I think that's something that maybe perhaps COVID-19 has shed a little bit of light on the fact that there is such a, a massive collaboration, uh, among scientists in the development of treatments at not, not obviously not just with COVID, but across the spectrum of, of diseases that we are working on.
2: Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's one of the good things about being a scientist is this um, amazing and fast communication, we're learning new things every day. We're reading new things every day, um, and I'll let Margot finish.
1: Well, I've seen over my career uh, a a shift to more and more and more collaboration. It used to be that if there was more than one or two authors on a paper, um, it didn't count for very much in your in your uh, evaluation by your peers. Now, it's very rare to see a journal article that has only a few authors. Many of them have more than 10 because it takes that kind of effort to do the kind of sophisticated science that we need to do. So these skills of being able to talk to people in other disciplines, being able to work out everybody's ego problems and being able to be you know critical but supportive of each other is tremendously important these days.
0: Well, as we close this episode of Pioneering the Future, I do want to provide the two of you with a little space to just share some closing thoughts about the work you do or uh, the the interesting field that you're in where you're uh, discovering compounds from nature that have potential medicinal outcomes for us. Uh, Dr. Haygood, do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to share as we wrap up?
1: Well, I guess I'd like to see more interaction between biologists who are studying nature as it exists and um, uh, scientists who are directly directing themselves toward the discovery of drugs. I think this has worked very well in, uh, in the case of me and Eric, and I think it could be a more widespread model.
2: Um, yeah, it's a great model. Um, and I feel very lucky um, to have met Margot a long time ago and to have been working with her on and off ever since. Um, it's Really rewarding when people have different knowledge bases, different styles, um, and um, Margot is an amazing biologist, so it's been great.
1: I totally agree with uh, relative to Eric
0: well, thank you both. The work that the two of you have done is incredible. It's very inspiring and Drs Haygood and Schmidt thank you for coming on pioneering the future.
2: You are very welcome yes, yeah, and thank you. It's been enjoyable.
0: Thanks for joining us for pioneering the future stories of discovery and innovation at university of Utah health to find out more about the discoveries discussed today and many more important discoveries at the university of Utah, please visit discovery.med.utah.edu special thanks to Wes Sunquist, the genesis of this endeavor to Julie Kiefer and Abby Rooney for production and supervision. Additional thanks to doctors Haygood and Schmidt for joining us on the podcast for more about this month's theme. Or for past articles and past episodes of the podcast, search for University of Utah Pioneering the Future.